you're a little homesick. Oh, this is not homesick. This is more than homesick. I'm facing serious personality meltdown. Fleischman. I'm Joel Fleischman, the Jewish doctor from New York. You take that away, and who am I? What am I? Well, Fleischman, just for getting a few subway stops. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Don't you understand? It's like invasion of the body snatchers. I'm being replaced by some insidious replicant, a Joel Fleischman lookalike who talks crop rotation and carburetors. I gotta stop it before it's too late. So Joel is afraid of losing his identity. He uh, invokes the film Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and uh, apparently he's he's morphing into the type of person who would, I don't know, talk about small town stuff versus, you know, the big city, uh, New York, uh, knowing where the subway line ends or starts. You know, I've never actually seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I know there's a few different versions. Are you familiar with this franchise? I guess it's not really like a series, but... This this IP? Yeah, no, I've never seen it either. Is, is it similar to John Carpenter's The Thing? No, I ha- so I haven't seen <laughs> Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but uh, I would imagine so. The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing. Have you, I guess have you seen that? Yeah. Yeah, so that's the one where some alien force is like assuming different people's identities. So in The Thing, I think that's about like some alien uh, replicating other people and it can shapeshift and change. But I think in Body Snatchers, it's... More about like a lot of people being uh, replaced by different aliens, but it's like a, like an alien race maybe is invading the bodies of. I, I mean, again, I haven't <laughs> no idea. <laughs> I could just be making up a movie right now. So yeah, I, I I guess that's a really curious one for Joel Fleischman to use in order to describe his thing. Um, my my thing about it is like, haven't we been here before? Like, have we not talked about Joel Fleischman's identity and him being a New Yorker and him being Jewish in a land that is neither Jewish nor New York? Yeah, I feel like he's he's losing his identity in a lot of episodes of Northern Exposure. And uh, I, yeah, I mean, like, I feel like at this point, I feel like he's already has assimilated. So him kind of coming out early in this episode and uh, feeling like he's lost his New York identity, I feel like that's already happened, maybe. He's already, like, ingrained himself and rooted himself. Yeah, yeah. You know what it... You know what this sounds like? This sounds like David Chase didn't watch like the other four seasons. Like he got, yeah. he, like he went on Wikipedia, like whatever their version of Wikipedia was in the nineties, the back of the VHS box. He like read the description and he was like, you know, I bet, I bet he goes through like a lot of identity problems with that. It's like, yeah, this Chase. make a great episode. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's already been we, done. we did that in the second episode. <laughs> uh, but so yeah, we're talking about Northern Exposure, the 1990s CBS TV series, Originally created by Joshua Brand and John Falsey, now we're in the fifth season. The new showrunner, David Chase, who goes on to Sopranos fame. Uh, we've we, in our in our season premiere episode, we talked about the uh, foreboding presence of this new executive producer title at the end of the episode. Like as soon as it ends, you see executive producer David Chase, and what that means for this new ser- uh, new season going forward. But yeah, I guess we'll be talking about uh, some more of season five in this episode. We are the Northern Overexposure Podcast. My name is Lee, and I'm always joined by my co-host, Charles. Yeah, this is my first time seeing Northern Exposure. It's my first time going through this roller coaster of seeing what David Chase is going to do to the series. And what we also do in this podcast is that we like to get somebody that's never seen the show before, and we like them to watch the episode, see it with some fresh eyes like I have, and have them talk about the episode. Yeah, our typical format is we bring on a guest at the end of the episode, uh, someone who's never seen the show, to give their opinion. Because, uh, you know, we want to just, like, 
evaluate each episode on its own, but then also we want to expand the reach of Northern Exposure because it's kind of a uh, it's kind of lost to time in a way. Like it's never been available to streaming. Um, it's for the longest time was only available as these DVDs where a lot of the original music was replaced. Though for the fifth season, Charles, we've our, our past guests in the past uh, three episodes are all people who have seen Northern Exposure. So that, you know we're we're not necessarily expanding the reach of the show, but we're still bringing on fans of the show, I guess, to get to get other takes. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> they've they've already seen the show, but I, I think that's fine. I don't think we're breaking too many rules right yeah. here. We'll we'll get back to maybe uh, I don't know who the guest is on this episode yet, but uh, hopefully it's someone who hasn't seen it yet. Regardless, I still like I still enjoy that portion of the that idea, you know, ex- bringing it to someone new. So we'll definitely bring that back soon. All right. Well, who do we have for today at the director's chair? Yes. So today the episode we're talking about is season five, episode four. It's called Altered Egos. The director is a John David Coles. This is the only episode of Northern Exposure that he's directed. He also did an episode of I'll Fly Away. And Charles, I don't know if you looked into this already, but John David Coles, well, he's directed a lot of TV. I think he directed like five or seven episodes of Sex in the City, some other shows. But uh, what you might find interesting is he directed two episodes of The West Wing. He directed the episodes Arctic Radar, and Life on Mars. What? No way. Yeah. Those are two fantastic episodes. Great episodes Arctic, of TV. Yeah. Arctic Radar might be my favorite episode of yeah. West Wing. And it's even got like some great direction in For that sure, one. Yeah. It's not even just a writing. That is very interesting. Because on this one, I did find particular moments that I did feel were strong. And it's not because you just told me <laughs> this man is responsible for one of my favorite episodes in West Wing. Uh, there was like three moments that I genuinely thought. I was like, oh, this was like a really cool decision that I don't think I've ever seen them use before. Um, yeah. yeah. So he's, were, uh, he's always had it. You know, he's been a great director since Northern Exposure <laughs> or since uh, 93. Uh, sorry, you were going to ask me about the writers, right? Yeah, yeah. So we've got uh, Jeff Melvoin returning as the writer. He's written episodes... Dateline Sicily, Democracy in America, Crime and Punishment. Uh, he did the doubleheader of Ill Wind and Love's Labor Mislaid. He also did Kaddish for Uncle Manny most recently. Now this episode, Altered Egos. And actually, if I'm not mistaken, I think he's got another doubleheader in that, like the next episode that we're going to watch, Charles, I think he wrote it. That is very interesting because like we talked about, these seem like themes that we've already touched upon, but maybe he's being guided by some sort of like, uh, you know, outside interference of telling him like, no, I want to, I want to talk about these themes. Like, I don't care if you dig it up again. Yeah. Who knows if this is an original idea pitched by Jeff Melvoin or if it was a script idea that they had kicking around in the writer's room. I don't know if there was a writer's room. I'm not really sure entirely how the scripts um, were developed for Northern Exposure, but yeah. We've talked about it already. It seems like maybe they're retreading some of these storylines. Um, actually, I think this reminds me for some reason of um, Michael Samuel in the first episode, our guest, was talking about how, at least in that episode, he felt like a lot of things were being recycled. And so far, it feels like it's been uh, there's been a bit of recycling. And maybe that just has to be, that just has to do with now we're in the fifth season. Like, this show has been on for so long. Maybe it just like, eventually repeats itself but i don't know it could also there's so many factors i don't know i I feel bad just like throwing everything at david chase but maybe (laughs) that is what is happening you know uh okay sorry last thing the air date for this episode was october 11th 1993 um so altered egos where do we begin do you want to just like yeah 
Well, why don't we just take it by the very first scene, which I thought was already very interesting. Uh, so what's happening in the scene is that Chris is doing another one of his K-Bear monologues. He's talking on air and Bernard shows up. But what's really interesting about this scene is that we see like an outside shot of K-Bear, but from an angle I don't think we've ever seen before. It even looks like a new location based on the new perspective that we're seeing this K-Bear. Yeah, it's almost like, if I remember correctly, it seems like... Uh so Chris is alfresco, is what he says. You know, he's back. He's got the uh, headset from uh, from Old Tree. That's the season four finale when he's like finally broadcasting from outside. And uh, yeah, you just pulled up a shot of what you're talking about when Bernard uh, rolls up. Uh, yeah, it seems like K-Bear's like lift. It's kind of like not on the ground level. It's like above ground or no, there's like a railing. Yeah, doesn't it look like it's a little above ground? Yeah, is this a new set? Uh, you know, I've seen them walk by the rails before, but I don't think we've ever been, I don't think we've ever seen them on the ground below. So how do I describe this? So there's sort of like a little bit of a parking space that Bernard pulls up to. In front of that is sort of like a raised platform with a railing. And then behind that is K-Bear. So it appears that K-Bear is like, you know, lifted off of the ground. Like you would uh, have to walk up uh, maybe like a handicap ramp or some steps to get there. Uh, normally when we see them walking outside of K-Bear, that ramp level is the ground level. So I didn't know that it goes goes even lower than that, it seems. I don't think it does, though. Like, I, I'm, I'm almost positive there's no ramp. I'd have to watch. Yeah. This is my first time seeing it. Yeah. But I could have sworn it's just a street that they well, walk on. I, that's what I was saying. It feels like it's ground level, just the street. But I, I, it'd be hard to believe that they wouldn't, that they would like redress, that they would find a new location, you know, for that. It has to be, it would have to be the same. Well, all they realistically <laughs> have to do, the only reason we know this is K-Bear is it's because- he's got the neon Yeah, it's sign. got the yeah. neon sign. All you have to do is move the neon sign to like another building. And then they're like, yeah, it's, that's K-Bear right there. It, I, I will, I will agree that this is an angle that we have never really seen I don't, I feel like they, they wouldn't pull that sort of switcheroo on us, but I don't know, maybe you're onto something because this does look very uh, foreign, you know, in a way. Like, how do you, is that a thing we've kind of talked about a little bit in season five where certain things, and I think we see it in this episode, actually in this monologue, someone walks by Chris and he's like, hey, morning, Mike. You know, he's like talking to these extras. It feels like in this season, they're trying to uh, bring the town like more alive, like, give the extras actual names. And it's like, these aren't recurring characters, but maybe that was like a note from David Chase, or maybe that was a new direction they were going. And also you talked about Charles in uh, some of our earlier episodes this season, how there's just new, a lot of new sets or the same sets, but like different areas, like maybe like the basement of one building that we haven't seen before, or this other like corner of a room that we haven't seen before. So maybe they're trying to like do new things with locations. And yeah, K-Bear looks strange from this angle. I will agree. Not bad, but just like this doesn't, <laughs> you're right. It seems like normally when they're walking on it, it seems like street level or something. Yeah. Well, anyway, so what's happening <laughs> in this scene though, besides what it appears as is that Bernard shows up for a unexpected visit. It was not scripted and he's with a new, uh, significant other. He's with Anne. Anne McGrath is who, uh, is how she's named. Like they roll up and, uh, I wanted to bring this up. So there's like a, there's a, a couple episodes, maybe in the third or fourth season where Bernard is visiting, where he comes into town in one episode. And at the end of the episode, you know, Bernard is always like leaving. He's only in for like, only in town for one episode. So at the end of the episode, he has to inevitably 
leave. And then uh, it was either, it was like some, some point in the third or fourth season where he, there's a Bernard episode. And then the very next episode or very near it, uh, Bernard comes back again. He's like, what? he just left. He's coming back again. And I remember Bernard, it's like they made a point to point to, to point out that uh, Bernard has a new car. It's like, oh, cool, nice new car. Um, so every time I see Bernard come into town, I always try to remind myself, like, is this the same car? Is it a new car? Because one time they brought attention to it. And I don't know, man. They, he could be having a new car in every episode. I, I wouldn't recognize it. Does this car look familiar to you? or? Ah, uh, no, I just... I know he rides a motorcycle sometimes. Right. The motorcycle is his like first appearance in um, yeah. Aurora Borealis. Uh, he had like sold his car. Yeah. Bernard goes through a lot of cars, man, apparently. Uh, anyway, sorry. The, the meat of this scene, what you're talking about is this new girlfriend that Bernard has, Anne McGrath. And uh, the end of this scene is basically, you know, Bernard introducing Anne to Chris and Anne recognizes Chris. Like they go way back and it's kind of like a weird cliffhanger before we uh, go into the opening titles. All right. So this is where we can split and see which one of the plots that we want to go into. So, you know, we just talked about Chris and Bernard. That's going to be one of the plots. The second one will be the opening soundbite that we had with Joel and his identity. And then the third one would be Marilyn and her boyfriend Troubles. So which one should we dive into? I'm going to, I'm going to suggest either, I'm going to suggest coming back to Chris, like tabling that for a moment. Uh, how do you feel about Joel, Marilyn? Uh, how about we go with Marilyn? All right. So Marilyn's plot line, as you uh, sort of mentioned earlier, is she has boyfriend troubles. Uh, well, it starts off with Marilyn in Ruth Ann's store. And I think Maggie's also there. There's an electrician working on the lights or something. Uh, the... I don't know, the breaker box at Ruth Ann's store. And as he like tidies up and finishes the job, it turns out that he's got a date with Marilyn or something because she's just like standing there. He's like, all right, I'll see you later tonight. Uh, and she says, yeah. Uh, so this is Ted, I think. I, I can't remember if we were given his last name, but this guy, oh, Ted Banks, the electrician, has a date with Marilyn. And I think, uh, you know, he, he asks her, going to pick you up later. See you later. He gets out of there. And I believe Maggie and Ruth Ann, or maybe it's just Maggie is more interested with like, oh, so Marilyn, you're going on a date with this guy? Yeah, it's definitely Maggie that's inquiring about Marilyn's dating life right here. And she's saying like, oh, you know, he, you know, he's an electrician. He looks like he's well put together. And I believe this is where they say that they're going to go to the dump. Yeah, the dump to do some uh, bear watching, which uh, I think has been established before, right? I don't know if you remember this, but people will go to the dump to watch bears. I don't remember that. Yeah, I guess it's not that. Yeah, that's I guess totally, they don't say it. Yeah, it's totally too not safe though. You, like they gotta, you gotta enclose your um your trash cans. Yeah. Not because of like the bear coming to maul you, but because of like it's teaching the bear that like he can scavenge for food. Right. At like a you know in civilization, <laughs> you can't do that. They gotta learn to like it's better for them to be doing it in the wild. Yeah. Uh. So I mean. I guess they have the safety of their car, though I think later when we actually do see them on their date um, by the dump, I think their car is like open. Like it's like sort of a van with the back door open. So they're not like, they, there's not, you know, there's an opening for this bear to, to rush them if it needs. <laughs> we don't see a bear. So, but I, I'm assuming uh, they're, they're, I don't know, actually, sorry, jumping ahead a bit. We'll get to that scene later, but is there actually bears there when they're there or they're just kind of waiting for it? I think they're waiting, right? Yeah, I think they're just waiting for the bears. Okay. Um, anyway, 
yeah, I, that's basically the scene I wanted to uh, touch on. Like you were saying, uh, Maggie says, oh, you got a date with Ted. He seems like a nice guy. Kind of trying to get uh, to, to see what Marilyn's opinion is of Ted. And Marilyn's response is, uh, yeah, he's a good good electrician. You know, <laughs> like she's, Marilyn's very, uh, you know, she, she doesn't, doesn't say a lot, I guess. She kind of keeps it to herself. Yeah, it's very interesting that she says he's a good electrician and not like, oh, he's a good being. She kind of reduces yeah. him down to his profession, kind mm-hmm. of reduces yeah. him down to like what's being written down uh, on like your job application of what you would be. Um, I think that's very interesting that from the get-go, we can see that. Yeah, because uh, she, you know, not just Ted, but uh, some of her other boyfriends, you know, she has a very interesting, um, I don't know if you say perspective or relationship to who she chooses as um, her boyfriends. But let's just continue down this plot line. It's pretty... Um, it's pretty minimal, but I think the next time we do see them is uh, is the actual date, right? Yeah. So they're chilling in the back of I would assume Ted's electrician van, and it's a uh, you know it's a little awkward at first. You know, I think they kind of like he shares some soft drinks with her. Um, she doesn't say a lot, and Ted is Ted is I would say like it's visibly he's visibly happy to be on a date with her. He's Glad to be there with her, though it's a little, you know, it's hard to break the ice maybe with Marilyn, <laughs> if you could imagine. Uh, but they start talking about dogs. Uh, I particularly really liked um, when he like, he he says to Marilyn, he, he holds his thumb up and he says, you see this? That's Nintendo thumb. I got that from playing Nintendo with my little cousins or something, <laughs> uh, my nephew or whatever. Uh, and, they, and they have a very long conversation about Super Mario World. Yeah, they have a conversation about that. I, I think what he's trying to do is that he's showing that, like, he wants a family, yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. I think that's, like, a subtle thing of what he's trying to do right here. Yeah, for sure. Um, so there is actually a deleted scene for this episode uh, that I can just tell you, Charles, it's this exact scene with, like, one or two lines extra. Um, so I don't think you lose any context. Basically... I think it's um, Ted who says Malamutes first whenever he's talking about dogs. In, in the episode, as you watch it, I think uh, he, he says uh, to Marilyn, do you like dogs? And she says Malamutes. Um, but I think Ted brings it up first in the deleted scene. And then the very end of the deleted scene, he asks her if she also plays Street Fighter 2. And she says, no, it's too violent. And he agrees, yeah, it's too violent. That's it. It's, <laughs> it's not really a deleted scene, just a couple lines that they cut out, I guess. Oh, okay. But yeah, otherwise, <laughs> that's a very short scene. And we don't really see how the rest of her date plays out. Yeah. But Well, I will, I will say, I think by the, by the end of the scene, like I was saying in the beginning, it seems a little awkward. By the end, they're kind of smiling and laughing more. But we don't know. You're right. We don't right. know how it ends up. Yeah, it looks like that it's ending. Like it has a uh, possibility for a trajectory to go up. But then <laughs> as we see on the very next scene that involves Marilyn, she has decided to break it off. Uh, Ted has now come into the office. Um I don't think it's for a checkup. I think he's just actually just there to yeah. talk to Marilyn. And he's saying like, well, what did I do wrong? Like, what? why won't you give me a second chance? And Marilyn is, uh, I don't think she's even responding to it. I don't think she's saying anything. I think she's mostly saying like, I got work to do. And basically what's happening is that Marilyn has been snooping through Joel Fleischman's files to find out about her date's personal history. Yeah, personal medical history. She doesn't really budge much when Ted asks her for a second chance. And he sees himself out of the office. Joel kind of picks up on this. He tried, he like, you know, he goes into the other room to try to give Ted and Marilyn some space. But um, 
he's listening the whole time. And he finds out that Marilyn has been going through all of the medical files. You know, she works there. Um, it's part, you know, he says something like, these files are only for professional use. And she says, like, it's my job as the secretary, you know. But, but this is obviously, like, bre- breaching doctor-patient oh, yeah, confidentiality. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and here's another example of something we've kind of keyed on in some of the past episodes with just very angry and harsh uh, conversations. Like, Joel is very scolding to Marilyn, so much so that we can kind of see it in her face that she, like— it looks like she's just been scolded. And then like, he has to end the scene by saying like, um, look, just please no peeking. Right. You know, he like kind of, he's conciliatory towards, uh, Marilyn, I think at this point, cause he kind of blew up on her, uh, which he had all right to do. But normally I feel like in the past, what would happen is like Joel gets angry and aggravated and like in shock and disbelief from Marilyn. And uh, it's more, we're laughing at Joel because it's like, this guy is like getting so worked up and whatever he does, it's not going to change Marilyn. She's like so stoic and still and Joel's like freaking out. And in the end, he's like, all right, fine, Marilyn, you win. But no, in this scene, it gets pretty nasty, I guess. I think it's because oftentimes it's ambiguous if Marilyn crossed the line on oh, yeah. what her actions are. <laughs> and on this one, you can clearly tell that this is a serious breach of uh, privacy that like, I, I'm entirely on Joel Fleischman's yes, camp. Yeah. Like I would be reacting in a very similar way. Not only is she breaching doctor-patient confidentiality, she's also potentially costing Joel his job. Yeah, like, yeah. Cause oh, yeah. he is the one that is ultimately going to be responsible for this. So, it's weird that this situation even happened, though, because ordinarily, Marilyn doesn't go on dates. Marilyn doesn't do, like, such a selfish thing. So the way that the show has painted her is that these were, like, very distinctly selfish uh, actions. Right. So therefore, Joel has more of a moral grounds to scold her. Yeah. So this situation ordinarily wouldn't pop up. Yeah. You're right. When you said that... uh you know, Marilyn normally doesn't act in such a selfish way, mostly because like, you know, at first when you see Ted come into the office, I feel like I'm kind of on Ted's side. And then I'm like, wait, did something happen? Like what's going on? Marilyn must have some reason. And she does have a reason. It's kind of a bogus reason. um, And it's really messed up that she sort of broke, I don't know, is this breaking the law? Breaking, she's breaking the rules uh, to do, to get this information about um, Ted. So yeah, it does seem a little weird. And I think everyone else's opinion, even like Maggie and, uh, and later when they're in like a laundromat, I, I guess we'll get there, but they're also kind of, kind of, uh, I don't know, shocked or upset that to learn that Marilyn just decided to stop seeing Ted. Well, let's continue. Maybe, maybe is that the next scene or is there, let's see, there is a scene with like someone else in Joel's office. And I don't know if that comes before or after the laundromat. Before. Before, right. Okay. So that's so before we get to the laundromat, Joel is seeing this patient who has like an allergic reaction on his hands. Obviously, it turns out he's got an allergic reaction to the new latex gloves that he's got or the new rubber gloves. And he writes uh, he writes the man, the patient, a prescription for a corticosteroid or something. So whatever it is to um, relieve itching. And he says, all right, just hand this to Marilyn. She'll get, you know, she could, she set up with that uh, prescription. And the patient says, I'd rather not give this to Marilyn. I don't remember how, but basically it's inferred that uh, this is a, this is a man who 
maybe had a uh, had had a troubled history with Marilyn, and so Joel has to go ask her about that. Yeah, the man is Floyd Carson, and apparently they had like maybe like a date or something right there. But these two scenes kind of like we connected both of them previously, but this is ultimately the scene where it's revealed that. Marilyn was taking peeks. Oh, yeah. this is where he learns it. Got it. it, it cool. It, they meld into two yeah, yeah, because yeah. they're both in the office and they both deal with patients. And like, <laughs> you know, they got to merge. But yeah, this is where Joel starts scolding her and everything, uh, which would, do you want to talk about more about this scene? Oh, yeah, yeah. So this is the, what we had just talked yeah. about. Um, yeah, that's about it. There is a, uh, hold up. Isn't there like a scene in the brick? With Joel and Marilyn? No, no, there's not. So the next thing is, sorry, I've been scrubbing through a lot of episodes today. Um, so I've probably got, I probably have seen a lot of uh, images of them together. But uh, we just talked about this sort of scolding. The next time we see them is the laundromat. It's Marilyn. It, actually, I don't think we've ever seen the laundromat in Sicily before. This is pretty cool. Yeah, it's um, very interesting. <laughs> uh, it's like a vintage laundromat. Yeah. Like, it, it's one of those things that, like, uh, how do I best describe this? If you've ever looked at, like, a Polaroids before, mm-hmm. this would certainly be in one of those Polaroid <laughs> pictures. It just feels of a certain time, for sure. I like that there's, like, a sign or something that says, like, last load at 745 or something, obviously. I was like, I never thought about, I guess I've never actually used, I very rarely used a laundromat. So I've never been there like super late, but I guess if they're not 24 seven, you know, there's a cutoff. You, you can't. Did you so, ever, did you ever use your college dorms laundromat? Yes, yeah. Actually, if anyone's, no. <laughs> well, I'll say it. I had like some tie dye shirts once and accidentally washed them in the communal washing machines. And it, probably ruined some other people's clothes because there was like a sign that said like, do not wash clothes in these. They've been stained. And that was, I mean, it was my fault, but it was also a couple other friends who had been tie-dyeing. But I'm guilty. So if you hear that right now, if the statute of limitations hasn't ended, I probably owe you some clothes. I feel bad <laughs> for doing that. I used, to, I, I used to use the laundromat on my campus at approximately 1.30 a.m., <laughs> Why so late? Because it was always busy in the uh, day. True, true, so yeah. on weekends, I, Did you set an alarm or were you just up? No, I was just up. I mean, <laughs> you were you were like a, I was a freshman in college. I was like whatever. So like, uh, I would be up at like one thirty, and then I would just go and just do laundry, and it would take like I don't know, like forty five minutes yeah. for the machines, and I would be totally free. All the machines were available, and you know, just go get your laundry. But it was odd because uh, I lived in a place that was like it had like five dorms mixed together like all bunched up together so it was like a bunch of students and there was a courtyard and you'd have to walk through the courtyard to get to the laundromat and i would just be like at 1 30 a.m there'd still be people out and about in the courtyard and they just see this guy just like with like a laundry basket (laughs) just like walking through the courtyard and they're like oh god i can't believe he's doing laundry at the time is it like a thing where it's just like a bunch of kids like Drinking beer in the courtyard, yeah. like kind of partying, and you're just like walking yeah, through. Just like walking uh, through excuse me, breaking yeah. up, breaking up the beer pong table. <laughs> like, got a huge laundry list. That's funny. Um, what is the substance of this scene? They learn that Marilyn is stopped seeing Ted, and both Maggie and Anne maybe give her some advice. Yeah, well, it's very interesting that. This isn't a laundromat because they're literally airing dirty laundry right now. Oh, that's, wow. Yeah. So the writers were like, we should set this in a laundromat. And it's like, we got to do this. And yeah, let's build this set. Let's make this happen. That's that's good. Right. And 
with the dirty laundry, you're seeing like Maggie give her takes, we're seeing Anne give her takes. Anne's takes are much more financially grounded. We haven't really got in onto her character yet, but she is like a financial marketing person. True, so yeah. mm-hmm. she speaks in those types of metaphors, which mm-hmm. like I I'm like ambivalent on that. Cause it's not like there's like hundreds of millions of businessmen in this world. When you yeah. talk to one, it's not like they use business analogies yeah. in ordinary life. This is like also kind of the only scene where we get to see Anne, you know, speak freely and not, well, not speak freely, but like we can see Anne as a character without Chris or Bernard. Cause every other scene that she's in, it's like mostly about Chris and Bernard and she's sort of like a mediator between them. Mm-hmm. So this is a scene where they're like, who is Anne? We have to write her a character like now, so they have to like come up with something, I guess. Yeah, I mean, they're yeah. still they're still hard failing the Bechtel test. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true because they're talking about Ted. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Anyway, Anne's using this uh, analogy of saying like "no balls, new blue chips." Yeah. That's what my finance professor used to say, and she's saying like you know you shouldn't try to play it safe and try to find like the perfect individual. If you like someone, go for them, accept them for their flaws, you know, that type of gist. Yeah, I wrote down, all men have problems, Marilyn. I think Maggie says that. And then I think Anne says, if you want to play, you got to pay. Um, yeah, that's basically the end of that scene, right? I don't think there's any like strong conclusion to that. It's just like they kind of impart their own wisdom to her. Yeah, basically. Oh, yeah, I forgot about this scene. Yeah, you should. Uh, Charles has his laptop here, just shows me the... Uh, the visual of it, but Marilyn's in her house making some tomato soup, I think some toast. And I think when she's at the toaster, it's like positioned near her window so she can look out and she sees like an old couple um, kind of walking, just having an afternoon walk, like holding each other close. And it's just a very tight shot on Marilyn as she sort of like contemplates, I guess, uh, relationships and old age Maybe it's something with what Anne was saying. It's like, if you find someone who kind of works with you, you just like go with what you got and see if it works. Uh, so maybe she's thinking about the stuff you're talking about with Ted, like starting a family, maybe. Yeah, like growing old together. Yeah. It's not, I actually got, okay, let me re- reiterate. Yeah. I do like the scene. I actually <laughs> think that it's achieving a lot with very little dialogue. Yeah. So I don't even think she says one word in this scene. Right. It's some simple music playing and she goes to the window uh, what's really interesting is that when she's seeing the old couple walk on the street, you're seeing this tree branch hang down from the top of the screen. But then when we cut back to Marilyn, we see the reflection of the tree branch mm. indicating that like what she is going through is like not like a real quote unquote life, but like the real life is outside where the real tree Flips. branch is. Yeah. yeah. So it keeps going between that. I think it does it like two more times. Nice. And it's a quiet scene. The message of it is kind of cheesy, right. but the way it's being executed is pretty well. I gave them props for that because it only took them like, what, a minute and 30 seconds, I want to say the scene mm-hmm. is about, uh, to achieve that effect with no dialogue. Yeah, and as you said, the message itself may be a little cheesy. It would be worse if they tried to verbalize that. It's better if they just kind of stick to this like, not necessarily abstract, but, you know, this more of just like expression through image rather than trying to explain. I guess, what is it? Show, not, show don't tell. So right. there you go. <laughs> uh, that's that scene. And is it finally, is that like the last scene until she's at the bar with Ted? Yeah, I think finally at the end, uh, she goes to sit by Ted. He's at the brick. And Ted's like, no, nah, Marilyn, I got a cold. You probably don't want to get too close. 
but um, it, it doesn't seem to bother her. He like orders himself. I, f- I forget, but basically he's, again, I just think it's nice to see Ted. He's just like happy to be sitting with Marilyn. I think they would make a really good couple just to, just cause Ted likes her so much, you know? Right. And it's interesting that they bring up the fact that I believe he has like a bronchitis or something like that. It's, he's got a cough going on. Marilyn's whole thing was that she was looking through the oh, yeah. medical histories of people and seeing what was wrong with them, even from like 1985 with like a, <laughs> you know, whatever small thing. It's brought up again where she is now willing to risk her health yeah. in order to be with this individual. I actually think in some way she's looking through the medical history to see if her future children would have any problems, yeah. I think is what's happening here. Yeah, that makes sense because there's like a heart. <laughs> but it's like very minor things is why it's like Joel can't believe that or, you know, they can't believe that they, she would find – she would breach – um this sort of confidentiality for that. Uh, it's just very silly things like a heart murmur, but that was like years ago. Apparently Ted had a bout of impotency, but that was like in the 80s. So at maybe a decade ago, maybe maybe less at the time of this show, but still like years ago. Who knows? Um, you know, only Joel knows like his current medical history though, I guess. Uh, I guess Marilyn, if she did some more digging in files, <laughs> could probably figure that out. It's weird that, you know, something that happened years ago would prohibit Marilyn from starting a relationship with this person. But you're right. I do like that um, at this point, there is a a medical problem in this scene. He's got bronchitis. Probably he's like sick. And Marilyn has thrown that out the window. She's over it. So she's good. Yeah, this is actually like the second time that Joel is invoking medical records. Because doesn't he do that in episode two with the um, curio shop people? Uh, The husband has a medical history as well. Yeah, well, he's like um, basically saying like the not necessarily medical. Well, it could be medical, but like uh, more about the confidentiality. Like Joel has uh, gathered from the family in in the second episode that they have a dysfunctional family, and like you know, it's kind of like uh, it's more gossip than than professional to to admit that to Maggie. Right. I think he keeps it pretty close to his chest. Yeah. He, like I don't think he's ever gotten into an argument with someone in Northern Exposure like he usually does. But then start revealing like private things about them to be like, oh, yeah, well, what about your, I don't know, gonorrhea? So (laughs) he's never actually done that. That's actually a really good characterization of Joel because he still has like uh, some moral or integrity that he's not willing to breach. And he is like a, you know, at the end of the day, he may be sort of standoffish, you know, especially that's how like the series began. He's this uptight New Yorker in a loosey-goosey small town, but he's always been a uh, consummate professional when it comes to the medical field. You know, he's always been a great doctor. Cool. Yeah. That's kind of like the last scene I think of the episode, definitely the last scene, obviously in Marilyn's plot line. I like that they're playing the song, Non, je ne regrette rien. Sorry, uh, it, pardon my French. <laughs> it's uh, that uh, it's that Inception song. Yeah, the Inception <laughs> song. Pre-Inception, but uh, you know, it's always been a, a popular song. Uh and that probably has uh, more to tie in with, well, maybe all of the plot lines, you know, but um, it's a nice uh, closing uh, musical cue. But let's roll it back and uh, let's go over to Joel's plot line that we started with the uh, the soundbite. All right, let's take it back to Joel, which has a very cool shot, his very first shot. It's him leaving the brick, but the camera kind of pans down from the top of the side of the brick and it goes all the way down to Joel, who's got a bewildered look while he's like tapping his pockets and he heads back in. And it's not like a straight shot. There's something unique 
about it that I can't quite place my words in. Maybe you could help me out here, Lee. Yeah, let me take a let me watch it real fast. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm seeing is like it's sort of a craning down shot. We start at the sign of the brick and we uh, crane down to the door, and it's sort of a low angle to where when Joel exits the brick and steps into frame, the camera's like lower than him, and uh, he steps right up closer to the camera, so he's sort of like a medium close shot. So we really get to see his face when he stops and like kind of scrunches his eyes and realizes like he touches his breast pocket, realizes like he's forgotten something. Did that help? I don't know. Is that no, 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 that did, yeah. Okay. It's just such a clean shot right it there. It looks good. It like yeah. looks like a sharp, really good camera move. And he like, the way he steps, it's almost as if like the camera falls into place and then he lands exactly on his mark. It's like looks really good. Yeah, it, it's the best of both worlds. Like <laughs> the, the actor's coming to the camera and the camera's coming to the actor yeah. right there. So props to that scene right there. Yeah. But what's happening here is that he's going back into the bar because he has lost his wallet. Um, he goes around, snatches around on, on the tables and asks people like, hey, have you seen a wallet? Have you seen a wallet? And then someone, I, I want to say it's Ed, um, who oh, suggests yeah. and says like, hey, did you check the pool table? And he goes over there and he finds that his wallet is there and it's also fully intact. Yeah, no one has like stolen any money from it. No one has stolen his wallet uh, he just misplaced it is what happened. He was convinced that someone must have stolen it. Um, I wrote down, I thought it was funny, like uh, Joel lost his wallet and then the camera goes crazy because like the camera is like tracking him and he's moving really fast and is mm-hmm. following him. Really cool camera work. And yeah, he he is disappointed in himself for um, being so careless with his wallet and uh, almost the fact that there's still money in it is like almost like an insult to him in a way. Um, that he's just like, this could have been a catastrophe. And even though it, it, everything's fine, um, you know, Ed is like, oh, that's great. You know, it's all still there, even though it seems fine. Like it just goes to show that Joel is like lost his edge. He says he's kind of like lost his, I don't know if he says this, but basically like, it feels like he's losing his city smarts in a way. Yeah. He's losing something to gain something because he's becoming, Mm. uh, slowly more acclimated to the town where we see Walt eating, what is it like? Peanuts? I think it's yeah. I thought it was peanuts because it's in a brown paper bag. But I think it's sesame seeds. Oh. Uh, by the way, they're like spitting them out throughout the whole scene. Yeah. So he's eating sesame seeds out of this brown paper bag, and then Joel joins him. He's wearing some pretty nice winter boots on. Yeah. And they make a comment about them, and they kind of just do like a very small chit chat where neither of them are really in a rush to go anywhere. They're mostly just enjoying the moment of what's happening, and then Joel kind of like. Like, he's out of the moment, but he's also, like, in the moment. But then, like, suddenly, he, like, really gets into the moment. Like, he flashes in. He's like, wait a second. What am I doing? Like, wait, hang on. What, what is happening? And that's when he gets into, like, an existentially fraught state where he's realizing that he's talking about uh, winter apparel yeah. with a random dude outside his <laughs> office. Yeah, I love this. Uh, I love this scene. I, it's glad, I'm glad to see Walt again. We've talked about how Walt is uh, – I believe he's going to become like a recurring character this season. He's already been in a few episodes in the past seasons, but I think he's really going to make a a, a recurring appearance throughout the season. But yeah, it's just straight chilling with this old dude. I've got the soundbite. Um, I'll probably have to cut it down a little. It's, it's like the whole scene is great, but I'll, I'll play what I can here. Those do you through the winter? Hope so. Got a little cold last year in my old boots. You know, it works for me. I put my sorrels on the outside. Expedition weight capoline sock next to the skin. Sheet of aluminum foil in between. Yeah, it works. Warm as toast. Heavy duty for? Whatever. Shiny side up or down? 
Sunny side towards the body. Reflect body heat. I came up with something last year during that cold snap march. Rub a little Vicks vape rub on my hands before I put my gloves on. Vicks, hmm? Dart warm, you stay warm. Oh, God. What? Oh, my God. Dr. Fleischman. I'm sitting here eating seeds, having a serious conversation about winter clothing. Oh, man. First my wallet, and now this. What's happening? Yeah, I love that uh, aluminum foil trick and just, like, a shiny side, like, in or out. Like, does that even really... It's so specific, but, you know, it's like, it seems like a silly question for Joel to ask, like shiny side in or out. And Walt is like, no, yeah, it's shiny side in, reflects the body heat. <laughs> totally normal <laughs> to talk like that. Would that actually work? You know, not, not just like the heat, but would that feel comfortable? Like I've never, I feel like aluminum foil, well, I think Joel says, should it be like heavy duty or normal? And Walt says it doesn't matter. But I feel like aluminum foil would be kind of, could be like rough and could hurt. It's on. I know there's like a layer of, he says something like sorrels, then his aluminum foil, then like a, I don't know. He has like a layer to it. Supposedly it works. <laughs> it does like work. From, from, so people do this? Yeah, and, people do this. I've heard about it for like like a poor man's camping trip, but also for like <laughs> literally like, uh, I mean, it, like it feels, I don't even know if I want to say this, but like I mean, like homeless people well, also have that. Yeah, like, uh, you know, if they don't have like any way to keep warm you know that's obviously you have to keep your warmth inside of you yeah th there was a yeah, joke though uh like in 30 rock there's a joke um there's a homeless man he's like a recurring character played by hannibal burris mm. i don't even think he has a name but uh he wears aluminum foil uh not because to like keep him warm but it's like to protect against the aliens yeah <laughs> <laughs> nice a little double duty there uh that's awesome uh yeah this is an awesome scene uh joel is losing his identity not only is he losing his New York identity, but he's like fully assimilated, becoming this sort of like old country type person. I think, uh, I think, it, I think it's not a necessarily like new idea that Joel is like assimilating to Sicily. I feel like that's constantly happening in every episode. Uh, most of the times with Joel, that's like sort of one of his, um, one of like the primary like changes his character goes through is to become more and more laid back or like more uh, in tune with like down to earth with people and with small town life. I, I, I guess like the, the thing that like now that I'm, you know, talking it over with you and I'm seeing it in a little bit new light, maybe like the first half of that is true, but maybe like what they're doing on the second half of this statement is that whenever you gain something, you're kind of losing something is what they're trying to hint at. Right. So they're trying to show like, can you actually grow without losing anything? Like, yeah. can you, can you actually turn into another human being and in the effort of doing so, do you become like, you know, like a ship of Theseus situation where you're like, <laughs> are you actually a brand new human being? Which I guess they haven't really tackled that particular okay, angle yeah, yet. Yeah, so yeah. maybe this is what they're trying to go for. Yeah. Cause it's definitely obvious that it's like, he's, he's assimilating, but like now I guess the new angle, if you would say this is like a new angle, it's like he's losing part of himself to become something new. Uh, is the next scene the like dream sequence or is it? Okay, cool. Yeah, no, this is a cool one too though. Uh, Charles is showing me the, the video. This is with Maggie at the break and Joel says like, do I seem different to you? 
um, is there something changed about me? And she's, I like that she's like, you know, actually, I, I think I actually saw you like laughing with Holling the other day. And uh, Joel's like, well, he told a really funny joke. Like it's like, <laughs> but um, that seems like a great off-screen moment. I like that they included that. Even though we don't see it, we just know that they were hanging out, you know? Yeah, so we're getting some more reinforcement that, you know, from an outsider's viewpoint, that he is indeed getting more comfortable living in Sicily. And that brings us to the quintessential dream sequence. Yes, which is awesome. Uh, there's like a, uh, this young sort of uh, man who enters the brick. It's a particularly stormy night. And he's like, oh, my car broke down. Like, can't, you won't believe it. Like, this is insane. Uh, my, oh, he's like, he, says, he said his car is like overheating. And they're like, in this snowstorm? And uh, there's this person, this old like crotchety man at the bar who keeps like kind of interjecting to this young man's conversation. And we don't really see, we kind of see this old man from behind. And then as we get closer, you know, the man kind of turns and it's Joel Fleischman. Um, but I think according to the dream sequence, like Holling is like, he's been here for 25 years. Dr. Dr. Fleischman has been here for, for ages. So he really knows uh, something like he says something like, yeah, you, you don't know, you don't know cold unless you lived through the snowstorm of 96 or something like that. <laughs> and it's great. Like he's got, um, a, a beard or like a mustache and his hair is like kind of like old man hair. It's a pretty interesting costume uh, makeup going on. Yeah. This is actually the scene that got me thinking of something very interesting that I don't know why I never thought about it before, mm. but you touched upon the idea of Joel being here for 25 years. So he's become like a town staple and he's able to, he's become so good that he, he even knows all the like uh, tricks yeah, of yeah. fixing your car. And somehow this got me thinking, what if instead of rebooting Northern Exposure, like they've talked about? Yeah. What if they just did a Northern Exposure movie? Like Northern Exposure, the movie, but it's the same cast, you're saying? Yeah, or? yeah, same cast. And it's like the plot line would be like in between kind of like season four and five. And oh. like Joel's still here. And then we would go through like what would happen if Joel lived through the town of Sicily. Yeah. Would it have to be new actors, I guess? That's the thing is because they're ah, That's the problem. Now, yeah. yeah, they should Like this dream sequence could happen, I guess. We'd have like Joel, though. Yeah, I won't get into any spoilers, but like we would have an older Joel for sure and an older Maggie. Um, Barry Corbin is still kicking. Uh, John Corbett. Uh, they, I guess the cast is still there. They're just like, you know, Barry Corbin and um, John Cullum, super old now. Like they're, I don't know if they... Or even acting. Uh, yeah, stuff, that's but, uh, true. But still, I think that like I don't know why I never touched upon that idea to be like, why can't there just be a movie to tie everything up, bring yeah. back the original cast members and everything? And uh, I had told you about this idea before, but <laughs> I thought it was like a really good sitcom idea. But we could probably reuse it for Northern Exposure. But like, what happens if like Sicily started getting like way more popular in the future, and then a bunch of millennials yeah. and Zoomers started moving into the it's town. Like a hipster town now. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a new age town, and you but you have like old Sicily still there. The same so, old characters, like old as uh, Barry Corbin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've gotten you know you have this preserved way of Sicily, but now it's meeting this the newcomers that have become really enchanted from what they've yeah. seen from like the nineties and stuff. <laughs> and now we're having like a duality right here. And Joel's kind of like in between, maybe, maybe he comes back to Sicily yeah. after his practice in New York. So <laughs> I thought like, maybe that could be like the plot line. Yeah. That's interesting. That would be really cool. Yeah. I, you know, who knows what the, the reunion or the reboot is going to be, if it's actually still in the works right now, I think, Rob Morrow always says like he's up for that idea and there's maybe always something happening, but 
you know, when talks were starting to rev up about a reboot of Northern Exposure, John Fauci, one of the show's original creators, passed away like maybe six months or a year after that started becoming big in the news. And when he passed away, it was kind of just like, okay, uh, we probably aren't going to reboot this. But having said that, you know, every once in a while, Rob Morrow might tweet something or there might be some talk somewhere, but I think officially nothing, right. no hot news yet. There's no hot news yet, but <laughs> I'm just saying like a movie is so much more easier to use to wrap up things yeah, yeah. than a full-fledged 25-episode season. Yeah. I wonder if it's just like more financially easy to produce, who knows? Yeah. Um, series versus uh, movie. But- Dream sequence, yeah. Anything else you got to say there? Uh, uh, not really. That's about, that's about it, yeah. It's yeah. just, a, it's a great little, uh, it will, Joel wakes up, it's a nightmare. Uh, that's like, you know, he, that's what he is becoming and that's what he fears he's becoming. I don't know, that guy seems pretty cool. Like the Joel from 25 years later, like, <laughs> exactly, like you want to see that, you know? Um, but to Joel, he's worried that he's losing uh, his New York, um, his, his the part of his identity that is New York, like, he goes on about it probably in this next scene that we're going to talk about. He goes to Ruthann's store and has a long list of um, items that he'd like her to order. He's got, let's see, Zabar's coffee, pickled tomatoes, corned beef, pastrami, belly locks, bagels, all, all different types. And then uh, he's going to go like pick out a bunch of movies from her little movie corner. He grabs Dog Day Afternoon, Godfather, Manhattan, Midnight Cowboy, Serpico, and Taxi Driver. All, you know, very New York. Is Godfather set in New York? Sorry. We actually talked about this. You've never seen The Godfathers. I've only seen the first one. Well, I mean, it must be, right? I think part of it is like in Italy. I know that. There's must be, yeah, it must be if it's lumped in with this. It's got to be. Um, because that's the whole reason why Joel is checking out all these movies because they uh, in like evoke the feeling of New York and you know, he feels like he's lost. Um, I, th- I just find that's kind of interesting that this city this place is to him so much of his personal identity. I mean, like there's no way New York could be a person, you know, but you can envision it as like a, as a, as a character, as a personality. So it's like, even though it's not a real living person like that, there's something about like the attitude that he gets on. Yeah. Well, isn't it like always parodied though? Yeah. When New they're York, like, the city New York's a, is the a character. The city's a character in of its the, own. I love the city. Like, yeah. It's like in this movie, the, the city is actually the, another character. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's so vibrant. It's got like an identity <laughs> of its own. I've always thought that was like weird. I mean, like, sure. Like, I don't know. Whatever, sorry. Well, it's because like, we're not. I mean, we're not from New York, so maybe we don't get into the buzz yeah. of it. I'm not. I'm not trying to take it away from it, but yeah. it's just like it, it's become so. Uh, it's been done so much that it's paired. Yeah. Well, just saying. I just even just saying the phrase like the city is a character in this movie. It's like. I mean, the city, is the city actually a character or is it just like a big presence? Yeah, it's a it's big just presence. like environment. <laughs> yeah. It's like there's not really a character named New York City in the on the script, right? It's just, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have its own slug line. Or I guess it has its slug line. It doesn't have its own dialogue. Uh, sorry, this is dumb. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, he's in Ruthann's store and gets these movies. And as he's leaving her store is when he has that conversation with Maggie about the body snatcher thing. He's like, I feel like I've totally lost part of my identity here. Yeah, that brings us to the next scene where Joel and Ed are going to have a movie night with all the videotapes that he's rented out. All right, yeah. Did he rent them or did he buy them? I think he just rented, yeah. Yeah, he just rented them. them. And Joel even has a line saying, like, literally, it's a way of looking at the world. He views uh, New York as such a powerful presence that it shapes his identity 
and right. like shapes his perspective of how he sees things. But unfortunately, whenever they try to watch The Godfather, like Joel's identity, yeah. Or go ahead. Like Joel's, uh, what, what would you call it? Like he's. His new identity is so strong that it manifests itself onto the videotape <laughs> and causes it to fail. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's like cursed in a way. Because, uh, uh, you know, the tape picture is really bad. It's kind of like hard to even see what's going on. You know, Ed's like, it must be the VCR or something. Joel says, I just got it fixed. We'll try another tape. And all the tapes that he tries, it just doesn't work. And, and I think um, – Rather than try to like uh, just do something else, I think Ed's like, let's just play a game of Monopoly, which would be awesome. <laughs> I'd love to see that. But uh, no, Joel's just had it. He's like, whatever, Ed, take the tapes. You can go watch them. Like, I'm sorry. I'm going to go to bed. Well, he, actually, it's really funny. He says, take the tapes. Take whatever you want. I'm going to bed. And then the ending shot is just Ed like looking around. Like after Joel says, like, take whatever you want. And Ed's like smiling and like looking around like, what do I want that I can take? <laughs> and he's like, all right, good night, Mr. Fleshman. Or good night, Dr. Fleshman. <laughs> going to take you up on that offer. Yeah. <laughs> And that brings us to the next scene where I think this is a very well-directed scene. So Joel is sitting on this stoop, um, kind of contemplating on how his life got to this way. And Maggie shows up. With, like I, th- I think she's just coming out of the laundromat, actually. So she's got hmm. the laundry basket full of clothes. What's interesting about this location is that I remember earlier in this season, I want to say it was episode one, where Joel gets into his truck and then he starts driving off, and then mm-hmm. we see like a a wide shot of his truck, kind of like veering off. Yeah, the like road. veering yeah. off, and it like it does a sharp turn to the right and goes into this alleyway. Mm. We never see the alleyway, but now we we get a little bit of a closer look because okay, we can yeah. see the alleyway like a little bit of a distance down from where Joel is sitting from the stoop. So they're using the same locations. I know that it's nice. just that they're shot in a little bit of a new angle, so it looks like a new location. Yeah. And this scene uh, is interesting. I wonder if I have a bite. I do have a bite. So this is Maggie trying to console Joel and give him like a certain perspective. Like, what if, what if all this uh, identity is? Uh, well, here I'll just I'll play the sound bite. I tell you, I feel like I've lost a part of myself. Well, Flashman, maybe it's a part worth losing. You think? No, you know, maybe it's a sign of growth. Please, spare me the, the pop psychology overall. Come on, Fleischman. What is growth after all? It's change. Growth is change. You know, a snake sheds its skin so it can become a bigger snake? I mean, to move on or move ahead, you have to let go of something. This obsession with New York, Fleischman, did you ever stop to think that maybe it's keeping you from yourself? Your ability to interact with others? What do you mean? It isn't healthy, Fleischman. Yeah, Maggie has an interesting perspective about it all. Like, uh, what is growth if not change? Maybe this part of you that is New York, maybe that's a part that's worth losing. She she points out that New York, in a way, is just like what Joel keeps to himself that keeps him separate from everybody else. Like, he's not like everyone in Sicily because he's Joel. He's New York, and it kind of separates. But to me, also... I was maybe a little, maybe I'm like kind of looking at this in the wrong way, but I was kind of offended by this. It almost felt like it's in a way Maggie is trying to erase part of Joel. Like this is Joel's culture. Like that's where I'm assuming he was born in New York, but this is part of himself that maybe she has a point that um, it is, uh, it shouldn't go so far to to separate and distance himself from his friends. Like he obviously has a fun time with hauling and is laughing. 
uh, has a great time hanging out with Walt, eating some sun, uh, eating some sunflower seeds. I think I said sesame seeds earlier, but they're eating sunflower seeds. You know, he has a good time with these people. So why try to separate himself from that life that he enjoys? However, I don't think you should be like, this is a part of yourself that's worth losing. Like that's Joel's past and that's like who he is. Yeah, I totally agree with <laughs> you right there. I half agree yeah. with what Maggie is saying, where yes. like growth is change. But I dislike how she said, like, maybe this is not a part of you that you need. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like there was an expression that I'm fond of where it's like, whilst effort does not always bring success, there's no such thing as wasted effort. Hmm. And what that means is that like, all of your like past actions and all of your things that you've done, your interests, your hobbies, places that you've lived, people that you've seen, they don't culminate into nothing. Like they all build into the current you and you use that past to build into the future. So Joel's New Yorkness, like all the things that he experienced over there, he can take those experiences and extract what he needs from it so that he can become a better person or just like a more quote-unquote Joel Fleischman. So I don't believe that you need to completely get rid of a past self. You just can't, in my opinion. I I don't think it's possible for you to say like, I'm going to erase 15 years, 20 years, however long, part of my identity to build a new me. Your new you is always going to be composed of your past, your interactions with other individuals, all of that stuff. So, yeah. And also, like you said, it's slightly insulting. Like, it's <laughs> like, it, she's saying that it's, it's wasted effort. And it's not. There's no such thing as wasted effort. Yeah. Maggie, to me, is sounding a little bit like uh, Kylo Ren from the Star Wars saga. Wait, wait. How does that? I, I didn't really watch him. How does this connect to Kylo? <laughs> he says, uh, let the past die. Kill it if you have to. It's the only way to become who you were meant to be. Remember, you've probably seen that quote at least. Is let, that? Let the past die, kill it if you have to. No, I've only seen, okay, <laughs> I've only seen like two scenes on the Star Wars one. It's one where he's like really wide with his shirt off. Oh, uh, <laughs> you're talking about Kylo Ren, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's got the weird like shirtless Kylo Ren. Yeah, yeah it's not that one. And it's like the other one where he's like, oh, they're only from memes that I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> I like the meme with Kylo Ren where it's like, he says, I want to be free of this pain. And the meme is... um, when you're a French baker and you're trying to get rid of all your extra stock, <laughs> because pain or pain, if you spell it out, P-A-I-N is the French word for bread. I want to be free of this bad. <laughs> There's a lot of potential right there. Uh, uh, that's from, uh, sorry, I think the kill it if you have to is from the episode, wait, how many? So episode seven, right? Force Awakens. Yeah, that's yeah. seven. Yeah. yeah, seven. I think it's from that one at least. Uh but yeah, so I think you're totally right. Like, if you go too far on that Kylo Ren spectrum, you know, if you, if Maggie is telling him to, you know, lose this part of himself, I don't think that's right. I think uh, everything is there. Maybe it needs to be shaped. Like, I think Joel really is accurate in saying that, like, New York, this attitude is part of his identity. Um, though he could shape it in a way to share it with others and not try to exclude himself or exclude others from his life, you know. Kick it with Walt. Uh, talk about these boots. I mean, Joel has obviously learned a few things. The Vicks Vapor Rub that he talks about putting on your hands. Like he's he's learned himself some Sicily lifestyle, and he could teach them about New York as well. Yeah, know? exactly. Like it's a two way street. Like whatever values they imbue onto Joel, Joel's also imbuing some of his values, presumably positive ones, yeah. onto the town of Sicily. So 
Yeah, I think that's a better way of interpreting it. So, yeah, I'm glad that we're both in agreement that, like, what Maggie said was, like, a little bit odd. I maybe it's, like, kind of in character because mm-hmm. Maggie truly does believe that, like, this is a part of Joel that is despicable. But that's <laughs> yeah. just a Maggie. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, well, thankfully, he doesn't have to kill the kill that part of himself uh, because, like, we'll kind of get through this plot line here, but um, he finds that he hasn't lost his New York attitude when he goes to the VCR repairman and he brings his VCR. It's obviously screwing up. And um, he says, look, you just fixed this thing and now it won't play. And the repairman says, you know, like if you want this fixed, it's like a whole, you can't just like change one part. It's all connected to like circuits or motherboard or some weird stuff. So like I have to order this part which is going to cost like $100 and then the labor is going to cost like $80. So it's like the price of a new VCR would be less than this repair. And Joel has that New Yorker attitude and, you know, is is kind of threatening this man. It's like, look, if, if you don't fix this thing, I'm going to like report you. You know, I think he says, um, I think he says, do the words Better Business Bureau mean anything to you? I think he's invoked Better Business Bureau before in this series. I think he's actually said that exact line. Do you remember this? Or uh, that sounds like something Joel would like, say. I think I've got like uh, something to tell the Better Business Bureau or something. Um, but I, I like this because if we are to take Joel's word to be true, let's assume this is true, that like Ernie really did sell him a busted VCR machine. It's entirely on Ernie's fault. He has pulled a fast one on Joel. Joel's learned the New Yorker way of standing up for yourself and being like, I'm not going to take this. And in fact, I'm going to double it onto you. And some people like Maggie in the next scene might be like, (laughs) that's despicable. Like instead of, you could have just got like a, you know, moderately priced VCR. You would have just had to pay for the parts, just didn't have to pay for the labor. Now you have a broken VCR and a pending lawsuit in which you're trying to win. (laughs) Yeah, that's one way to look at it. But in the other way is saying like, Joel still has his dignity And he also knows that, like, he's not going to be taken advantage of if Ernie truly did screw him. Now, (laughs) we're not entirely too sure on that. (laughs) Yeah, but regardless, you know, Ernie gets pretty worked up and Joel gets pretty worked up and Joel storms out of that uh, VCR repair center or this repairman's shop. And uh, as you said, Maggie talks to him about this uh, interaction later in in Joel's office. They talk about it. I've got the soundbite that you're talking about. I'll, I'll play that real fast. Okay, so let me get this straight. Instead of a VCR that works, you have a useless VCR, a pending lawsuit, and an enemy for life. Essentially, yeah. And, and you're happy? Yeah. Perfect. You know, Flashman, you didn't have anything to worry about. All this morning, who am I, what am I? Please, a little shrillness, a little hostility, and you're back in the pink. All this talk about Zabars and Rockefeller Center, the IRT, Nathan's Red Hot, that's not what this is about. Misery. That's a missing ingredient. A little heartburn with the orange Julius, the world's a beautiful place. You got it. I really love that line from Maggie. She says, a little heartburn with your orange Julius. And just the idea that for Joel to be happy for a New Yorker, or maybe just specifically Joel, he needs to be a little miserable. And like that amount of discomfort makes him feel alive, you know, or... At the end of this little soundbite, it's not included in the soundbite, but, uh, you know, there's that dog barking outside of the window. He, like, rushes to the window. He's like, hey, keep it down, you know, and he's, like, almost gets gratification for himself at being able to raise his voice and, like, put that dog in its place or the owner in its in its place or his his or her place. Um, yeah, so it's, I don't know, a, a bit of that misery that 
miserable suffering lets him really like, I don't know, feel alive and belt out and like talk loud and, and be, I don't know, just feel feeling like uh, energized in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's really just the way that you're looking at it. So like to Maggie, she thinks it's personal misery. She thinks yeah. that like that's what he's going back to. But I think another way, like I just said, is like you can interpret it as Joel learning to uh, fend for himself. Like yeah. presumably if the scene is playing out the way we see it, this dog is creating a public nuisance and has been going on for long enough that Joel has to call it out. Obviously, that's not right for Joel to have to go through that. The owner should have to learn to, like, you can't have a dog barking out there for hours on end. So one way of looking at it is misery. Another way of looking at it is, like, yeah, he's just doing what he's doing. Yeah, like what you're saying is, like, this um, verifies his self-worth. Like, he's he's worth – he doesn't have to live in an office where this dog is barking all the time. Like, he's worth more than that. And also, like, he doesn't have to – be swindled out of a broken VCR. He just paid to have it repaired and it doesn't work. Like, of course, as a customer, you shouldn't feel like you go fix your VCR and it's broken next time mm-hmm. you try to use it. So like he he feels like uh, in a way being tested like this and having that what Maggie calls misery is a way for him to verify his worth. It's like, this is, I'm, I'm Joel Fleischman. I'm good. Like I deserve this. Right. It's simply just a way that you view things. So like Maggie views conflict as an evil Whereas Joel probably views conflict as like it's something in which like you can prove yourself, you prove your self worth, like you're saying. Yeah, I like that. Uh, that's the last thing of Joel, I believe. Right? I think it's funny. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, we already both said this, but uh, I like that in the soundbite. She's like, "So now you just have a VCR that doesn't work and like an enemy for life and a pending lawsuit." You know? It's like, <laughs> it's like yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, he seems fine. Um, all right. Style it back to the very beginning with Chris. Bernard and this character, Anne, who I think I hinted at that she recognizes Chris. She knew him from way back. But I think also in this very opening bit that something I didn't mention is that uh, they used to go out together. Like they were uh, partners for like six months or something like that for months. There we go. Opening title music, The Moose. And we roll into Chris's storyline, which is when we pick back in with them. Where's that? Oh, wait, is this the, hold up, what is the, so Charles, you just showed me the uh, image, they're hanging out outside of Chris's camper, maybe about to eat some food, drink some drink. I thought this, that scene I'm thinking of, I think, um, occurs at night, but what you showed me, I think, is day, so what's happening in this scene? Yeah, so basically they're just doing uh, exposition of okay. how these yeah. two know each other. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. apparently uh, she was taking a class and then Chris like barreled in on his motorcycle, <laughs> recited a few lines of House of Lees and then just like passed out or something like that. <laughs> and that's when they became inseparable and they started going out with each other. Uh, Chris says, though, from his perspective, is that he just got out of the slammer and he just wanted to burn off some extra energy. So he doesn't remember anything from this stage of his life. Yeah, I think, sorry, this is like for him, like one of the, I can't remember if it's like multiple or one, but it's like the lost year when he was like drunk his entire, like he, because I think there's an episode where he's like drinking a potato vodka or something at Hauling Still and he talks about, a whole year of his life is just like gone. Because yeah. He's an alcoholic. <laughs> so presumably this was it. Yeah. So to prove it, like this, to show that like they deeply cared about each other, they revealed that they had like not really like matching tattoos, but like tattoos that signified that they were like together. Yeah. Like she's got a tattoo. 
He's got one of a burning arrow. What is her tattoo? I only remember because I'm remembering the subtitle where it's like, and you got a matching one of a burning arrow. Okay, yeah, hers says love or death, which is sounds pretty serious, you know, but also what we learn from this expositional scene, she says, you know, then you just like one morning you just left. You left a, a, a note that said later and I never saw you again. I like bawled my eyes out for a few days. Um, but eventually I just went back to school and it all worked out. Like here I am. So ultimately she's not broken up about it. And Chris, um, while he does seem to be struggling with some weird, this just such, it's such a weird occurrence, you know? Um, I also don't think he's, um, necessarily like feels bad about, uh, about not being with her anymore. You know, like I think they're over their relationship, uh, their romantic relationship, at least, you know, that's pa- right. past that. Yeah. I'm at least glad that it's not going to be like a plot line where he's like, you know, it's two brothers competing for the like love. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or like Chris realizes he actually loved her. Yeah, it, it can very easily be that. And it almost seems like that's what it is. And it's interesting how it, how it turns. Yeah. So that brings us to the next scene, which is the one you were describing earlier where. Mm. Oh, yeah. This is so messed up. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's a lovely nighttime scene in this camper. There's some like uh, there's some like string lights being hung up. It's a very colorful scene. And she's telling stories about her past, about how she went to business school and then went to marketing. And she's kind of like she's lived a full life and yeah. doing all that. And then that's when she fell in love with Bernard. And then she makes a comment saying that. These two are really similar, so similar, in fact, that they kiss the same. And instead of just, like, taking her for her word for it. It's like, oh, cool, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Hmm. They were like, oh, <laughs> like let's, And like, it just gets quiet. It's like, yeah, that's interesting. And like, no, no, they, sorry, go ahead. They, like, double down. Yeah, they're like, they, they're like, oh, let's test that hypothesis. Let's do this, like, you know, very crazy weekend at Birdie's plan. It's just like, that's, like, obviously would not, you would never do this in real well, life. Well, I'll say... Earlier in the scene, they're talking about red wine. Bernard's talking to Anne. It's like, this is a wonderful Cabernet you picked out. And she's like, Bernard, this is Pinot. Can't you tell? And uh, Chris is like, you know, it's all red to me, brother. You know, like, she's like, I can't believe you two. You're so similar. And that's why she gets, but um, that's, but I was going to say that <laughs> I think it's the wine maybe that's getting them like, but that's, oh, that's still true. a little messed up if they're like all horny like that. Like, why would they start yeah. kissing each other? Yeah, that is, I, didn't, little, I didn't think but, about the wine. It's, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's an excuse, but it's not a very realistic, <laughs> I agree with you. It's just not a very realistic occurrence. Uh, they do it. They do a blind test for the kiss and, um, uh, kisser number one is Chris secretly. She says peppery, firm, very good moisture. And, oh no, sorry. Bernard's first, right? <laughs> We're going back watching it. <laughs> yeah. Of course, Bernard is first. He's peppery, firm, very good moisture. And you have to do Chris second because, like, this is a kind of a insane thing. Like, you know, Chris lost complete memory of this, and now he's about to kiss this person who maybe it'll jog his memory or who knows what will happen. This sounds like a bad idea. Why is Chris kissing this person? Uh, but he kisses her, and immediately she's like, that's Bernard, definitely Bernard. And then the Chris and Bernard are just like, oh, uh I think it just ends kind of on an awkward beat there. Yeah, but like, honestly, if you looked into this, like if you really thought about this, they didn't even have to be, it didn't have to be Chris and Bernard. I think if you just took two different people and you had someone close their eyes and they were a little bit drunk and you had them do like <laughs> they two would different kisses. Yeah, it's a 50-50 chance you could probably get it wrong. Like, yeah, it's not, I don't think they true. should be, yeah, I don't think they should be taking it. That's true, far. yeah, this is just 50-50. Uh, yeah, because this is what, 
really um, obviously strains Bernard and Chris's relationship here in this episode. Right. We can see that straining being carried forward to the next scene where they're doing some, uh, uh, it's like some sort of, some type of fish. Is this fly fishing? Is this what oh, they yeah. call fly fishing? I don't know, but they are fishing in a stream. Yeah. yeah they're fishing in a stream. They got like some uh, fishing attire and Chris and Bernard are kind of on the same wavelength, but not really. Like, they both agree that they want the same sandwiches, but they're also not hungry. So it's got, like, a dual meaning happening here where, like, they're obviously not pleased with what's happening, but they're also, like, the reasoning that they're so displeased is because they're so in sync. So it's, like, um, mm, um yeah. it's kind of like a paradox of sorts. Mm. Yeah, it's a little competitive between them um, because... Chris is like, I'm going to go fish up there. Why don't you two fish together here? And Bernard's like, well, wait, isn't isn't up there like where I caught that big fish last time I was here? Chris is like, well, I don't know. Well, you can take it if you want. He's like, no, that's fine. You take it. And then, as you said, the sandwiches, like they've got salami or PB&J. And, of course, Chris and Bernard, as we've grown to know them, like they're both going to answer the same thing at the same time. They both want salami. Unfortunately, there's only one salami sandwich. So it's like they're both fighting for the same thing. And I think actually what you said is an even better read is that um, they're finding that their similarity being so similar is actually causing problems. Like, you know, obviously with the sandwiches, but then even further with this weird psychological thing going on between Bernard and and, uh, Chris. Right. Their strength have now become their weakness. Ah, uh, To really build on that, for some weird reason, Chris is reading from this like, Obviously, subtext for yeah. what he's going through. <laughs> uh, he's reading uh, The Devil by Dostoevsky on K-Bear. Yeah. And I can't even remember what the passage is, but it's very it's very on the mark of what's happening, you know? Yeah. I I want to attribute it to the writing to be like, that's poor writing. But then the other part of me is like, eh, maybe that actually like falls in line with the character. Yeah, I think Chris through. would. I totally think if, yeah, if Chris is going to read something this episode, it's probably the double, you know. Right. And Anne and Bernard are listening while they're at the dump, which is Oh yeah, they're listening to the radio. That's right. Yeah. And it's really curious that they're at the dump because I think there's an expression that says like one man's trash is another man's treasure. Hmm. What do you get what do you get from that here? So like maybe like Chris didn't like her oh, and Chris thinks I like Anne's you know, she's she doesn't do it for me, but for Bernard it's it's, it's his treasure. Yeah, that will become a big point by the end of this episode. One man's trash is another man's treasure. Also, I guess their like love is in the dumps at this. We're just oh, getting a little yeah. punny here, but <laughs> uh, yeah. So Bernard's like not really in the mood. He kind of wants to turn the radio off because he doesn't want to hear Chris. And um, you know, Anne's like, really, it's not that big of a deal. You know, maybe I just need another sample of data collection. Like, I need another kiss. And you know, she kisses Bernard, and it's uh, it's a you know, it's kind of it's kind of a lovely moment, but it's. Uh, Interrupted because uh, Ted has come by asking for a bottle opener. Um, is it Ted or actually it's Marilyn? Marilyn's come Marilyn. by asking because they're obviously at this, you know, we talked about this before. They're also at the dump watching the bears or looking out for bears. Yeah. It's also really curious that Anne makes a comment uh, to try to like break the ice that there was like some bears earlier that had ripped ah. into some naga hide and like, yeah. ripped it like confetti. Naga hide, I didn't know this, it's a type of artificial leather. So that brings again the theme of something that like looks very similar, but it's not actually similar. Yeah, it's like a yeah, exactly like trying to imitate something else. Um, the double, you know, some sort of person imitating another. Um, but now we have 
I guess with Chris and Bernard, it's not really an imitation. They're kind of weird, weirdly, like psychologically, spiritually the same person, but they're what is different about them? I guess we will find out as we continue in this storyline. Uh, I got. I think that the next one I have is another reading from Chris on K Bear. He talks about a man named Robert Ardry talking about herring goals. He says, "To the human eye, all herring goals look alike, but uh, apparently they can like tell each other apart. They can tell their mate from one another, and they like know when she's coming uh, from like a mile away or something like that." So they seem very similar, but there is some underlying, um, something that at least us human observers can't notice, but these herringles seem to, um, to be able to pick out distinctly. I think Holling comes in and is basically, Holling actually comes in with a complaint from the brick. Like people at the brick are complaining about uh, Chris's um, radio. I was going to say they could just like change the channel or turn it off, but maybe they don't have any other channels. <laughs> I don't think they have any other channels there. Yeah. <laughs> I think that this, okay, so this is my gripe, but it's such a little gripe. And this is me digging into something yeah. I usually don't dig into. But you said that Chris is saying like even seagulls can yeah. <laughs> tell the difference between other seagulls. And he's trying to relate it to its own thing of being like, uh, like she couldn't tell the difference. Between right. Like even animals can do this. But well, the thing is, is that like a seagull can fly. Can you fly, Chris? <laughs> like, no. Like, it's obvious that an animal would be able to do certain animal things. Like, why are you decrying and like debasing this seagull? It's like, yeah, he's got skills that you can't do. Yeah. Like, it's not, you, you're putting yourself way too down by comparing yourself to this seagull, man. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I, well, he's he, right now, he's just purely thinking about, uh, physical qualities, like visually physical qualities, like what you may look like, where of course there are other things at work in the human psychology and also in this bird, probably like pheromones or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, like, it, you know, bird, it can probably <laughs> see way farther than you can. It can probably pick yeah. up more details. <laughs> like true. it's not, if anything, it's better than you are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Differences. Yeah. Oh, Holling says, you know, obviously he's like, you know, got to gotta change up that selection, Chris. It's a bit moody. Maybe you might consider playing something like Me and My Shadow, which I actually, I should have listened to the song because I don't know if I've actually ever heard this song, but I did look it up and it's a Me and My Shadow is a, a is like a classic tune. I think there's a version by Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. if you Google it, but it turns out a lot of artists have uh, covered this song. But just the title, Me and My Shadow, again, evokes like a, duo, a, a double, you know, that what Chris is <laughs> dreading here. <laughs> Right. And this is where Chris laments about the fact that, you know, he asked Holly in a hypothetical question, what if there was someone else that was sleeping with Shelly and, you know, Shelly compared this new individual as being the same sexually as Holly and that upsets him. And that's the thing that gets at Chris because somehow in Chris's mind, he thinks that like the core of your being is defined by your uh, sexual uh, prowess. Yeah, or at least in this case, yeah, it's like he seems like yeah. Actually, he does. Say, Hold on, I got the soundbite, so let's play that. Oh, you know, actually, I did not pull the soundbite for this clip. I think it's a later scene, so you probably didn't hear a soundbite, or maybe you did. But uh, basically, what was happening here is Chris explains that you know it's not a jealousy thing necessarily but more about like what makes me unique, you know, because Bernard, if Bernard is exactly like me, then that's not unique. And uh, yeah, he also does tie in, I remember what you're saying, like somehow like valuing yourself on your sexual ability in a way, 
which kind of lost me. That doesn't really, I don't know if that fits in with this thread, but at least for me, the thread that he's going on is, is, is talking about like what makes him special, I guess. Yeah. I think if I remember correctly, he's trying to relate it to id, like one mm-hmm. of uh, Sigmund Freud's things, uh, ego id, uh, all that stuff. Right. And, uh, I guess it kind of falls in line with Chris cause he is kind of a person that values like that type of core of human intimacy. But still, I feel like the answer is still kind of right there where it's like, <laughs> that can't be the only thing which you can judge to be like, if something is similar to another human being. Yeah. He's, he's trying to, yeah, he's kind of like, uh, focusing it onto what, like, it's not just black and white like this, you know, there's more, it's kind of, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think what I really want to, what I'm trying to do is get to this next scene when Chris and Bernard and Anne are on a bike ride. I think it's pretty interesting. Chris is on his own bike and Bernard and Anne are on a tandem bike together and it's just not working out. Chris says something like, all right, we got to, we got to find our own separateness again. Uh, with, and then Bernard says, within the context of our sameness, how do they do that? with time and distance, basically saying like, you guys got to get out of here. Uh, we're too similar and it's it's really bothering. It's really messing with us. Yeah, I mean, he's not wrong. Like that's, that's oftentimes that's the cure to a lot of things is with yeah. like the passage of time. <laughs> I found it really curious that Bernard is wearing a crew neck sweater that's blue, but then there's like a red t-shirt underneath. And Chris is wearing kind of like the opposite of like a sweater, not Mm. necessarily in terms of like quote unquote oppositeness, but like he's wearing something you have to button up instead of being like a one Mm. thing that you wear. So it's like this gray vest that he's wearing, uh, gray khaki-ish vest from my memory. (laughs) And there is a red undershirt though. So though they do have the same color undershirt, they're outside appearance yeah is still different and it's not just like i don't want to read this scene as being like well you know skin color is different no i'm trying to say like it's obvious even from the scene that there is differences between these two characters yeah i mean they're not they may say they both want salami but they don't dress exactly the same not everything is like one to one there's obviously lots of differences and then this is uh physically uh visually different but i think it's more of a uh um, metaphor for like how on the inside they may have this uh, psychological spiritual red undershirt that is like combines them, but uh, there are there are other things surrounding that, um, not just the outward appearance, but there are other things surrounding their spiritual connect- uh, connectedness. Right, right, right. And then Chris goes to the brick to talk to Shelly. Kind of bemoans this uh, trouble to her. He's like, I had to kick my brother out. Had to do it. And Shelly has a really interesting story. I love. I love when Shelly has an interesting story. I think some of the best uh, moments, or I don't know, maybe sometimes it's not so great, but this is a cool story that I like. She talks about um, these two hockey players, Jacques and Gilles, um, which is funny. It sounds like Jack and Jill in a way, but I guess Jacques and Gilles were like identical twin brothers. And uh, Shelly talks about her and her old friend, Cindy, who was in a past episode. I can't remember which episode that is, but Cindy is a character in Northern Exposure. We've seen her before. But they used to be, I think she, her own words, she says like groupies, I think, for um, the hockey players. And, um, you know, they could never tell them apart. Like maybe like Shelly was with Jacques and Cindy was with Gilles, but Jacques and Gilles would like switch up on them. And so they would never really know, which is what's happening with, uh, in a way, well, not exactly, but, you know, blind test with Anne. She couldn't tell Bernard and Chris apart. Um, Having said that, 
Shelly was also like, we would get so drunk sometimes we couldn't tell them apart. So maybe the wine is part of it. Like you said, the 50-50 flip with uh, Anne not being able to discern Chris and Bernard. I mean, it's 50-50 chances there. Um, Anyway, that's not the end of the Jacques and Gilles story. She goes on to say that there was this one referee that hated Gilles. He hated one of them. Let's say he hated Gilles. And he would always blow the... um, the whistle at Jill and like give him penalties or whatever. And so they thought one day maybe they would switch jerseys. And um, still the referee was like blowing the whistle on Jacques, who was actually Gilles. You know, they had switched jerseys. So despite this um, switcheroo, you know, you, he, he, there's something about Gilles in this instance that the referee could discern, kind of like those herring gulls. Um, but more importantly that, you know, these two people may look the same, but they're obviously doing something different on the on the uh, on the ice there. Yeah, it's basically saying like uh, his his hate, which I guess <laughs> is like correlated with love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we is go. Okay. So <laughs> it's so strong that like a homing pigeon, he's able to narrow down exactly who it is, and that's what gives Chris this uh, seed of an idea to tell him like, "Hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm looking at way too much of our similarities." I'm not looking at our differences. So that's how he comes to the conclusion. He goes and chases down Bernard and Anne before they leave in the next scene. And he tells them, he says, I'm not attracted to Anne at all, but you are. So your your love for her is what separates us. Yeah. And Bernard's like, what, that's it? And he's like, what bigger difference could there be, man? Like, this is this is it. And I have, this is the bite that I have. So I'll play that now. And there's a difference, really. Really? Really? Look, ever since that you got here, I, I've been trying to trigger the old memory cells, you know, trip the, trip the hormonal lever to want to go horizontal. It's just, it never happened, you know? I mean, I look at you today, I'm not attracted at all. I mean, it's, you know, your features are pleasant enough and everything, it's just never happened, man. I mean, you know, the way your nose goes up and down when you talk, that would drive me nuts after a while. Bernard, if I put Anne in a room with 10 other good-looking babes, She's not the one I strapped to the Harley. You got a point, Chris? Yeah, I got a point. The point's obvious. You are in love with Anne, not me. You. That's it? What greater difference can you have? I mean, Bernard, look, we contemplate the world through through different bifocals. You know, we stand here, we look at Anne. It's you. You love her, not me. Why? Why is that? Why? Well, hey, man, call it pheromones. Call it RNA sequencing, whatever you want to call it. Bernard, down in the deepest recesses of our being, down in that crazy intersection of, of sense and impulse and passion that we call the human heart, you have different wiring than me. He's not the same. You're a different person. I'm a different person. I'm a different person. <laughs> hey, Hermano. <laughs> oh, man. So that's the difference there. Bernard is in love with Anne. Chris just like as much as he was curious, you know, he knew he had this past relationship that was very powerful and strong, like they got tattoos and everything, but now it just doesn't click for him. And I like that he even says like, he was wondering like if it would click or like try to, he's maybe trying to figure out more about this lost year through Anne, but it's just, it's just, there's no chemistry there. And, uh, Maybe that's hard to pin down. Chris says, like, call it RNA sequencing, call it uh, pheromones, whatever you want. Like, I don't know how we can describe that, but it's clear that you love her, I don't. Yeah, I think the way that I mapped it out was that 
so we know that Chris and Bernard have similar to exact interest. So mm. if we assign this to a numerical value, let's say they both equal 10, but there's lots of ways to get to 10. So Chris could be 5 plus 5, and Bernard could be 2 plus 8. The end result is still 10, but the way you got to the 10 was drastically different. So what I'm getting at here is that Bernard lived a different life than Chris. His uh, All of his past experiences all culminated into this being that we know as Bernard. And the same thing happened to Chris. And the path that he took allowed him to be able to fall in love with Anne, whereas the path that Chris took, you know, got him out of love. Yeah, split them apart. That's really good. I like that numerical representation. That's a great uh, way to visualize that and to think about that. And uh, I believe that's the last scene with Chris and Bernard and Anne. Well, there's like kind of one more scene. Oh, yeah, because, oh, wait, actually, yeah. He's got a um, closing monologue that I think is really good. I don't have that clipped, but maybe I'll end up playing it. Maybe I'll play that at the end of uh, the entire episode if you want to hear that. It's probably like a long monologue, Um, but it's really nice. He says some things like, I I just jotted down a few notes. Um, Actually, wait, sorry. It is really nice, but I think it doesn't really fit. Maybe I'm just interpreting this wrong. It doesn't really fit because Chris is talking about things like, is love supposed to last all time or is it like trains, like coming to station and leaving? It seems to me in this closing monologue, Chris is like saying like, you know, what is it about the way I loved Anne and now I don't love her anymore? I guess that still kind of fits, but like it's not, it doesn't remind me more about Chris and Bernard being different. It's more about Chris and Anne and what they maybe had and what they don't have. Yeah, I think it's mostly to fall in line with the plot line involving Joel and uh, his New Yorkness. Mm, yeah. So the decisions he made up to that point in life made him fall in love with Anne And then a different period of his life happened, and then he fell out of love with Anne. Uh, It's a very curious statement because it's implying, (laughs) and I I think it's true to some degree, at least in my opinion, that like you can fall in love with an individual at one point in your life, and maybe that like that's going to shape the rest of your life. You're not you're with this individual, so that's going to shape who you are, and then you're going to remain in love forever. Whereas if you didn't meet them, like let's say at the age of 23, you met them at the age of 33, but when you're at 33 and that other individual is at 33, you're two different beings. Mm-hmm. So then you can't fall in love. Had y'all met at 23, y'all would have stayed course and maybe remained forever. But you, you just missed that uh, that intersection, that yeah. train stop. And that's what's stopping mm. you. And I think that's what Chris is musing on. That, like his past self changed and she just wasn't part of the change. Yeah. I'm trying to think about, there's a lot. So I'm also thinking about that closing song that we talked about, the French one, uh, Non, je ne regrette rien. Sorry, I had to do that again. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, just applying that to each plot line, because each plot line deals with past selves. You know, Chris was maybe uh, a different person when he was with Anne uh, in the past. Joel was a different person than he is now with New York. That is like a big part of his past. And then even with Marilyn, like she's um, concerned about her dates, her partners, their past. And at this point at the end, uh, she's not going to let that be a concern to her anymore. Um, With Joel, uh, he's kind of grown to, you know, maybe reshape himself, take his past and turn that into something, uh, a new Joel. Uh, without necessarily like subtracting that. And then with Chris, yeah, I don't know, just... Chris is more binary, I feel. 
His was like very like it did or it didn't happen. And once it passes, it just doesn't like it, it can't come back. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And he, that is interesting because he talks about that. Like, isn't that strange how that can happen? And I think that, you know, I think a lot of people, it's kind of a universal feeling that can happen. But yeah, it's an interesting, uh, very, very beautiful monologue. I'll put that all the way at the end of the episode. But yeah, I like how it all kind of wrapped together. Great, great closing song here. All right, Charles, now's the time in our podcast where we like to invite on a guest, typically someone who has never seen the show before. And this week we have someone who is a first time watcher. It is our good friend, John, who has heard of Northern Exposure before. Of course, we've probably mentioned it to him before, but I don't think he's ever watched a single episode. And uh, spoiler alert, I think he kind of liked it. But um, yeah, old friend John, let's see what he has to say. He's got a little introduction for himself. So uh, take it away, John. Hey, guys, John here. Just want to say thanks for having your podcast. Uh, For those listening, I've known the guys for a good while, Charles, since high school and Lee since middle school. I'm I'm assuming elementary school. That was too far back to really remember. But I just want to say thanks again for for inviting me on. I really enjoyed the episode. It was good. I mean, I've heard of the show from from you, Lee, and uh, a lot from Jay, but still didn't really know what it was about. They just Jay's always mentioned that we that it should be a show that we should check out in our free time, and I just never gotten around to it. Watching uh, season five, episode four, Altered Egos, it was it was pretty good. It was interesting going into a show without having any background knowledge on any of the characters, what was going on. Uh, I did recognize the the lead actor from his. Rolling numbers, uh, Rob Morrow. So that was really cool to see him in another in another role. But like I said, enjoyed the episode. It was interesting how both the uh, the doctor and the uh, radio host were both going through kind of like an existential crisis with the doctor losing himself of sense and uh, you know him being a New York doctor and was slowly, I guess, succumbing to rural life. And then the uh, radio host guy was who was trying to kind of lost himself in his brother. And they were both being the same saying they both were, had dated the same girl, but the other guy had amnesia apparently doesn't remember. So I, I'm going to try to go back and watch, start from the beginning to figure out how, or see what happened there. But it was really interesting to see how they both took on like a different way of getting closure in the ordeal. The doc kind of just went back to being a New Yorker after his fight with the repair guy. And then, the radio host looked for, you know, like a solution to the problem and then kind of fall backwards, kind of like how the doc did, just went back to being a New Yorker and just instead of kind of pushing forward and finding a new identity in his new life or his life at in the town they live in. And then the the doctor's assistant <laughs> sneaking in, looking at people's looking at people's medical files <laughs> made me laugh. I was wondering if that's what she was doing whenever she started naming all the problems that this person had and that person had. And I was like, oh, please tell me she's not sneaking in there, peeking in off the files, get that doctor fired or some kind of uh, lawsuit. But uh, it, it was a really entertaining show. Uh, I heard y'all talk about it a bunch. So I'm definitely going to check it out uh, after watching this episode so I can put in some, uh, fill in some of the missing pieces. I was like, I've always enjoyed watching like shows and stuff. People have amnesia, how the show tackles it and how, how different somebody can be. Like the guys, the uh, radio guy said, you know, he was in love with her. They, they were real close. And, you know, my boy lost his memory. Now he feels nothing for like a different guy. Now he's lit. Now he decides he's going to start looking for love. 
So it's always interesting to see how a show deals with like memory loss and whatnot. I've always it's always been interesting. And then I said, I'm interested to see how the doc kind of evolves later on to move away from his New York person or his New York identity to a more to his identity there in the town. But uh, thanks for having me. I uh, really enjoyed the episode. Uh, can't wait to see y'all guys in person again. It's been too long. Take it easy, guys. Yeah, so John has never seen an episode of Northern Exposure before, but he certainly knew about the show, but never really knew what it was about, I guess he said. Uh, he talked about our, you know, someone who has been on the podcast before, Jay, the person who introduced me to Northern Exposure, uh, has definitely, I guess, told told John a lot about Northern Exposure. Yeah, there's no doubt that uh, you two would have indoctrinated John into <laughs> Northern Exposure right here. I do like that John recognized Rob Morrow. He, he, he might mm. be the first guest, pretty sure he's the first guest, right, that recognized him from numbers. So I was, yeah, I really liked that John said that. I was going to say, Charles, that I don't think we've ever talked about numbers on the podcast, but I think that's... We've been, we've made so many episodes. We must have mentioned it at least once on the podcast or at least on the Patreon. But yeah, I wouldn't say Numbers is like a blind spot for me, but I've certainly, I haven't seen as many episodes of Numbers as I have of Northern Exposure. I've seen probably like, you know, like two or three full episodes and then it would always be on TV and my parents were watching it. I got to say, I think I really liked Numbers. I think I really liked it. I don't know. Did have you seen Numbers? I've only seen Numbers once. It was in <laughs> high school. And for some reason, my, I want to say it was my Algebra 2. Like my Algebra <laughs> 2 teacher put it on for class. I don't even, I don't even, does Numbers even have anything to do with mathematics? Or is that just like the title? No, I think one of the, at least one of the two stars, Rob Morrow or the other guy, I should figure out who it is. Because he's, he's also a familiar face. David Krumholtz is the co-star with Rob Morrow. I was going to say one of them is like, yeah, David Krumholtz, his character is a college mathematics professor and a prodigy, like a very smart kid, I guess. And Rob Morrow plays an FBI special agent and they solve crimes together using math. Oh, that makes more sense. Okay, no, I, I mean, I was, I was like fourteen at that stage. I honestly don't remember. I just remembered the logo, like when, like the, uh, like the opening credits were playing, and then you saw like the numbers. I want to say it was yeah. like green font, like popped up into the screen, and I remember thinking, like, what am I? I've never heard of this television show. What, what am I watching? And then like, it, yeah, I completely blanked on it. But yeah, going back into Northern Exposure, John said something that neither of us touched on, and I really like that he touched on this idea. He said that. Joel went backwards compared to Chris, who went forward. And he's talking about the idea that, like, Joel returned back to being a New Yorker. And in his mind, because he's never seen the show, and, it, you know, even if he had, there's actually a valid point that he could make, a valid argument, that Joel regressed and that he didn't necessarily change. Like, he did change, but, like, the change wasn't in a um, positive direction. Whereas Chris actually wanted to take charge of things and he went forward. Yeah, I like that John pointed out, you know, both Chris and Joel get to find some nice closure. But I like what you said that, you know, it's interesting that Joel sort of regresses or goes back to a New York state and Chris is maybe moving forward to something new. Uh, he's 
Um, what, what John finds very fascinating is this like sort of amnesia plot that's happening and how that is represented in TV and art and, and how amnesia is an interesting subject here. But Chris, I guess, abandons uh, what he's lost, you know, this and he's lost this memory and is starting something new. Oh, yeah. I didn't catch that either. So like John is saying like, okay, so there's a chunk in your life in which it's missing and you can go back and try to reclaim what it is, um, try to rediscover uh, something that happened 10 years ago. But instead, he just abandons it. And he's like, you know what? I don't need it. I'm just going to go forward right there. Yeah, so, maybe so. Yeah. I didn't catch that. That's actually really good. Yeah. Either that or also maybe not so much as giving up, but sort of closing a chapter. Um, because it's interesting at the beginning, well, at the end of the episode, Chris says, you know, he thought about at first trying to rediscover his lost memories. And ultimately, though, he decided to sort of close the book there and realize, you know, that he is he is who he is right now. He's not who he used to be. It's not we're, it's not something that he can return to necessarily. But, but I guess just like um, matter of factly, he wasn't feeling those same feelings. Right. It's, it's, it's so funny that John, he was never seen Northern Exposure. It's <laughs> picking up on like a lot of things yeah. right here. Even just like a short amount of time too. It's not like John, you know, had like a 20 minute spiel about this. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if uh, if John thinks that this character of Anne is like a recurring character uh, because this is like he's watching this out of context and he's like wondering if there was sort of a storyline between Chris and Anne beforehand. But maybe this is just me also inferring for him because this is like all out of context and I'm wondering if that is what he's imagining. Yeah, I mean, what what can you expect hopping into season five? Like it's very fish out of water. Like what is happening in the show? <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't think about that either. Like <laughs> there, there's a viable argument to be made that like he totally thought that woman, he thought Anne was a recurring character. <laughs> I think it's great that he, well, at least he says he guessed, he sort of, he sort of guessed that Marilyn was snooping on the patient's files just by the way she was talking about their health problems. That's I didn't even think about that. And I know that Marilyn is like Joel's secretary, but uh, you know, I was surprised when I learned that she was snooping on their files. It was, it was a surprise to me. All right. Well, thank you, John, for coming into the podcast and giving us your thoughts about it. Lee, what do we got next week? Okay. Well, next week we're talking about season five, episode five. It's called a river doesn't run through it. What do you think that's about? A river doesn't run through it? That's a crazy uh, <laughs> title right there. I'm going to guess that it means like, okay, I'm, I'm going to guess it's going to naturally be a plot involving uh, the native people. And maybe there's some friction between them and the uh, folks of Sicily. Okay. Oh, right, I can see like a river running through it, separating. Like, you know, I get the I get the imagery with that wordplay there the title yeah i mean there's definitely i think i think you're not far off but definitely it's a topic for discussion next week so charles i'll talk to you then all right i'll see you next week 
Northern Overexposure podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to John for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening. It's been quite a week for yours truly, and it's only Tuesday. Bernard and I have solved our metaphysical conundrum, and it's left me dangling on the horns of an even bigger dilemma, the, the biggest, in fact. Talking about the big L, people, amore, Cupid's arrow, this crazy thing called love. I'm not talking about this agape kind of love, or this spiritual, platonic, brotherhood of man, hey, I'm okay, you're okay kind of deal. I'm talking about arrows, serious grope time, the bonding of hearts, and glands like Tristan and Isolde, Abelard and Eloise, Bernard and What throws the switch? How is it that my brother Bernard and my veritable other self can find himself head over heels about someone to whom I'm totally indifferent yet? This is a big yet. Someone for whom I once carried a monster-sized torch. Was I different back then? Was she? Is love supposed to last throughout all time, or is it like trains changing at random stops? If I loved her, how could I leave her? If I felt that way then, how come I don't feel anything now? K-Bear lines are open.